Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie. I'm a lifelong Texan born and raised. And while I love my home state very much, I do understand that there can be some mm, misunderstandings between Texas and the rest of the world. So I am hoping that I can use this podcast to sort of show that we are all one humanity experiencing murder and mayhem together. Quick word of common sense warning, there is adult content in this podcast, so listener discretion is advised. So buckle up, buttercups, and let's get into it. hear about the Black Widow of Westlake? Now, I know, if you're from the Austin area, you're probably thinking, which one, right? For all that Austin's got a reputation for being like a crazy, liberal, hippie college town, it's good to remember that it has been the state capital city since 1839. There's some serious old money living in this town, mostly with waterfront property. In our last episode, we talked about a certain part of town, sort of the, uh, the seedier, more dangerous red light district kind of part of town. This time, we're going to talk about the other part of town, the exact opposite part of town, like t part of town where beautiful pieces of uh, hill country real estate start at seven figures, where private security guys uh, tool around the edges of very large properties in golf carts and segways, that kind of part of town, where the May-December lifestyle is alive and thriving. For those of you who uh, are unfamiliar with the term, May-December means a consenting adult relationship between people with a very large, very large, hmm, between people with uh, a sizable difference in their ages. The stereotypical May-December relationship is an older, wealthy white man uh, married to a young, pretty wife who is universally acknowledged to be a gold digger. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with this arrangement. What's a little financially convenient marriage between consenting adults, so long as nobody's getting hurt? In the city of Austin, this particularly wealthy part of town is actually made up of several little enclave neighborhoods, but they're all sort of generally referred to by the locals as Westlake. There's very little crime, very few disturbances in this part of town. Certainly not a lot of emergency calls, so it must have come as a bit of a surprise to 911 operators when, at about 3 o'clock in the morning on October 2nd, 1999, they got a call from an elderly man. His voice strained and tight with pain as he told the 911 operator, quote, I need an ambulance. Hurry. My guts just jumped out of my stomach. They blew out. Yeah, they blew out of my stomach. They're lying on my stomach. I'm in bed. I'm in awful pain. I don't know what happened. I've never had this happen before. Oof, right? The 911 operator did her best to try and calm the man down and get his address, and he gave the address as Toro Canyon Road, which is smack in the middle of the richest of the rich parts of Westlake. It's the address of the home of Stephen Beard, who is a local Austin legend millionaire media mogul. So the cops arrive at this house on Toro Canyon Road, and it's a big house. They're all big houses out there, but this one in particular is 6,000 square feet, and it's all one single story, so it sprawls out over this hillside. They go to the front door, the house is dark, and they knock on the front door, and they get no answer. So they start having to walk the perimeter of the house. There's no lights on out here, so they're navigating all of this like custom landscaping. There's little uh, decorative creeks and bridges and statues, and and the only light they have is the flashing lights of the of the emergency vehicles out in front of the house. That they start making their their way around the edges, they find a swimming pool. They're weaving in and out between uh, in and out between all the pool furniture, knocking on windows, yelling, trying to find whoever it is that is still on the phone with the 911 operator inside the house. Finally, they get to a sliding glass door leading into a bedroom, and inside they see an elderly man laying on the bed, holding his own intestines into his belly with one hand and hanging up the phone with the 911 operator with the other. The police let themselves in. The door's not locked. And they bring in the EMTs. They start doing treatment. And the, the wound on this man's belly is horrific. The only thing that the police can think is he must have had a surgery incision that got blown open somehow 
how the hell else would this man be injured in this way in his bed while he's sleeping? So they get the lights on the e so that the EMTs can get to work. And that's when the police notice this bedroom is ransacked. Drawers are turned out. The place is a mess. And it, somehow in that mess, in all this confusion with the EMTs trying to work on this poor injured man on the bed, the police find a single shotgun shell beside the bed. And just like that, the whole mood of the situation changes, right? It's not just an emergency response to an injured man. There's a shooter. And the police don't know if that shooter is still on the premises or not. So they leave the EMTs to do their work and the cops start to fan out and they start to search this enormous house and all the property around it looking for the shooter. And as they start to move from the wing of the house that they're in, uh, weaving through these thousands of square feet of very expensively decorated home, they're finding no one. They're finding no lights on. They find nothing until they get to the far wing of the house where they find two women, a mother and a daughter, who have apparently just been awoken by the police searching their house. And the, the older of the two, the mother, demands to know who they are. Why are the police in their house? What's going on? And the cops uh, demand in turn to know who the hell she is. Uh, and they find out that she is Celeste Beard the wife of Stephen Beard, the injured man at the other end of the house. The girl with her is her daughter, Christina. And the police inform her that, ma'am, your husband has been shot, and we're, we are currently trying to secure the premises. Well, cue the hysterics. Celeste loses it and starts screaming, please don't let him die. Oh my God, I need to see him. Please don't let him die. Christina stays a little more calm and escorts her mom to Stephen's side at the far end of the house in his bedroom where the EMTs are starting to load him onto a gurney because there's a helicopter landing in the front yard. Stephen's situation is extreme and dire, and they need to fly him to the nearest hospital as soon as possible. As the EMTs are wheeling him out to the helicopter, his wife, Celeste, is at his side holding his hand. They're telling each other, I love you, I love you. And Celeste assures him that she'll meet him at the hospital. And he's loaded into the helicopter and very dramatically uh, in a whirring of blades and engines and light, this helicopter lifts off and flies Stephen away to Brackenridge Hospital. The police never do find a shooter on the grounds. Whoever blew a hole open in Stephen Beard's stomach is long gone by now. Before he got shot, Stephen Beard was a self-made millionaire. He had started with a very small TV station, and then he built it up and built it up uh, until he became a media mogul in the city of Austin. Then he retired and sold his uh, TV station, uh, but he still maintained a few business interests uh, just to keep a little bit of pocket money flowing in. A couple of strip malls full of retail shops, you know, just casually. By all accounts, Stephen was, uh, was a pretty great guy. He was boisterous, friendly, outgoing, likable as hell in a Jackie Gleason kind of way. He was really well-liked in business, gruff and hilarious in his friendships. And for 45 years, he was happily married to a lovely woman who, unfortunately, in the early 90s, passed away of brain cancer. So Stephen found himself rudderless. His children were grown and off living their own lives, and here he was all alone with his millions. He spent most of his evenings dining and uh, drinking perhaps inadvisable amounts of vodka, with friends at the Austin Country Club, a place which is uh, exactly as posh and exclusive and expensive as its rather classily understated name implies. It was there in 1993 that he noticed a new waitress. She was a leggy blonde, pretty and flirty with a big, bright smile, and her name was Celeste Martinez. The two of them struck up a friendship that, uh, it evolved quickly. It wasn't long before Celeste moved into Stephen's house as his, quote, house manager. If any friends ever, ever referred to her as his girlfriend, he would say, house manager, damn it. She's my house manager. But pretty much everyone knew what was up. The cat was well and truly out of the bag. When Stephen traveled to Dallas for the 1994 Super Bowl and his daughter called his hotel room, and Celeste answered the phone. Now, Celeste was 30. Stephen, at the time, was 69. He had been married to his, to his late wife for longer than Celeste had even been alive. But, look, 
If the man wanted to ease his grief in the company of a vivacious young lady, if he wanted to spend his golden years reclining on a big old pile of his own money while receiving, and I quote, the best oral sex of his life from a pretty blonde, then honestly, who is anyone to begrudge him? As long as all parties involved are consenting and ain't nobody getting hurt, congratulations, sir. Well played. The lovebirds got married in 1995, and it seemed like... Frankly, the ideal, stereotypical, May-December-Westlake relationship. Except for one little wild card. Celeste herself. Celeste Beard was born in 1963 in Camarillo, California. She was adopted at the age of four months. And then not much remarkable happened after that until her teen years, when she got pregnant and married her boyfriend, Craig Bratcher. On February 6, 1981, she gave birth to twin girls, Jennifer and Christina. Now, like many teenage marriages that begin with an unexpected pregnancy, this one ended. But it did not end pretty. Celeste accused Craig of being into heavy drug use and abusing her, so she left him in 1988. And she left her twin seven-year-old girls with him. She then proceeded to sort of husband-hop her way across the American Southwest until, in 1993, as Celeste Martinez with husband number three, she landed in Austin, Texas, and got a job at the Austin Country Club. And oh, was that girl ever popular. A pretty blonde with legs for days, and a smile so bright, you almost didn't notice the dark, empty, shark-like doll eyes above it. It wasn't long before she struck up her friendship with Stephen Beard and dropped husband number three as quickly as she could. Once they got married, everything was coming up Celeste. She had access not only to Stephen's money, but also to his kindness. In 1996, Stephen paid for the lawyers for Celeste to, to fight for custody of her daughters from her first marriage. And when she won, and the girls and the now 15-year-old girls moved in with Celeste and Stephen in Austin, Stephen adopted them as his own daughters. And by all accounts, the girls were very fond of him. If you happen to ask Celeste, she'd tell you all about how their family was wonderful, how the girls loved their adopted dad, how Stephen would tell her that she made him feel young again, and they would go on grand adventures, jet skiing around on the lake, and, and just having a wonderful time together, which honestly seemed a little implausible. If you looked at the reality of the situation, Stephen was a 70-year-old man. And as lovable as he was, he wasn't exactly athletic. This was a man who enjoyed vodka and barbecue more than, you know, cardio. But Celeste had to maintain her story, because this marriage was entirely transactional for her. Stephen gave her a very generous $35,000 a month allowance. One more time, $35,000 a month allowance. Fun money. Folding cash. Just whatever she wanted to spend it on. And she would spend it, lavishly. I saw interviews with her where she listed off her 26 fur coats and her hundreds of designer shoes, each with a matching handbag, and her at least million-dollar jewelry collection. Girl enjoyed her spending. Now bear with me, this is going to seem like a tangent, but it's not. Uh, Stephen had a little dog, an adorable little rescue mutt, uh, that had been his late wife's dog. The little dog's name was Megan. And Megan loved Stephen with all her little doggy heart. She was glued to Stephen's side at all times, and she slept with him in the bed every night. Wherever Stephen was in the house, that's where Megan was. So, when Celeste fulfilled her end of the marital bargain, she would scoop up Megan and move her to the other end of the house, usually put her into the bedroom with her daughters, and let the girls know to watch Megan while she had to go do Sunday Suck Day. Which is exactly what you think it is. Every Sunday... Celeste would give Stephen the glorious oral sex for which he married her. Celeste also enjoyed a wild social life. She was a lively, sociable 30-year-old wife of a millionaire. She went out, she partied, and if Stephen ever complained, she would pour out half the vodka in his bottle and replace it with Everclear, then crush up sleeping pills into his food so that between the high alcohol content and the pills, he'd pass out cold in the evenings and she could go out and party as late as she wanted. In general, for Celeste, this marriage meant a well-funded life, utterly free of responsibility or consequences. That is, until her spending got out of hand. She'd blow through her $35,000 allowance within a couple of weeks, and while she's still got all this month left and all this shopping to do, what on earth could she spend it on? Well, the aforementioned fur coats and shoes and bags, but also 
she was addicted to remodeling and redecorating her homes. They had the Toro Canyon Roadhouse with its 6,000 square feet, but there was also a lake house that they had, and she would remodel and redecorate each of them almost as soon as the paint was dry from the previous remodel. There are folks who said that she would buy a new Cadillac the same way that another person would buy a candy bar on the way out of a gas station. It could be charitably said that Celeste had an undiagnosed shopping addiction, but honestly, I think she just loved to spend somebody else's money. Whatever it was, Stephen cut it off. He put his foot down, he ended her $35,000 a month allowance, and said, here is $500,000. Flat. It's in a trust fund. That is all of the spending money that you get. You can invest it. You can do whatever you want with it, but I'm not giving you an allowance anymore. Celeste spent all $500,000 in the span of six months. At that point, Stephen threatened to cut her off entirely. He threatened to divorce her. She was absolutely ruinous to him. Celeste responded by threatening to kill herself, which effectively put the brakes on that entire conversation. And in March of 1999, Celeste checked herself into the psychiatric ward of the St. David's Hospital, where she met another patient by the name of Tracy Tarleton. Tracy Tarleton has one of those faces. It's just good. It's broad and honest with rosy apple cheeks framed by a short practical haircut. In 1999, she's an out and proud lesbian and the manager of a local popular bookstore. But unfortunately, at this point in her life, depression and bipolar disorder had started to get the better of her. So taking care of her own mental health, she checked herself into St. David's Psychiatric. And there she met and was instantly taken in by the bright, lovely vivaciousness that was Celeste Beard. The two of them struck up the kind of intense friendship that you get in situations like that, where Tracy felt that they connected on a really, on a very deep and vulnerable level. Their friendship continued after they checked out of the hospital, with Tracy helping Celeste to curb her spending and Celeste helping Tracy to, to socialize. Celeste would throw lavish parties out of, her, out of her lake house for Tracy and all of her employees from the bookstore. Stuff like that. Now, the truth of the exact nature of the relationship between Tracy and Celeste depends entirely on who you talk to. Celeste will tell you that they were just friends, nothing more. Tracy will tell you that they were absolutely, completely, totally, lesbianically, romantically involved. Photographs will tell you that... The two of them were close, physically close. There's a lot of pictures of them leaning in. There's a lot of giddy, rosy-cheeked, clearly slightly drunk pictures of Celeste sitting on Tracy's lap at parties. Now, I'm not saying that it is impossible for a straight lady to totally platonically sit on her lesbian lady friend's lap. And I'm definitely not saying that there's anything wrong with the possibility that these two ladies might have been romantically involved, other than that whole possibly cheating on her husband thing. No, the situation here is that each of the women involved in this relationship had different stories about the nature of it, and the photographs are saying one thing, and Celeste is saying another. Whatever the true nature of their relationship, they were very close. So close, in fact, that in those early months, they even went to couples counseling for their friendship. Everything goes on well enough with this happy friendship blooming until we get around to October. Now... At the time that Stephen was shot while he's being airlifted away from his home, the police tried to ask Celeste who might have shot her husband, but she was a hysterical mess. So they moved on to questioning Celeste's daughters, Christina, who was there on the scene, and then later Jennifer, who happened to be away from the house that night, and asked them who they thought might have shot Stephen. And the first name out of both of their mouths was Tracy Tarleton. So the police go and visit Tracy, and they ask Tracy if she owns a shotgun. She tells them, yes, she's a sport hunter. Of course, she owns a shotgun. And when the police ask, she hands the gun over. And the ballistics instantly match the shotgun shell found beside Stephen Beard's bed with the gun handed over by Tracy. So Tracy gets arrested. Now, Stephen's not dead. He's just grievously wounded and fighting for his life in the hospital. So Tracy is charged with felony injury to an elderly person. When asked why she shot Stephen, Tracy had nothing to say. She remained completely tight-lipped on the subject. Meanwhile, Stephen's in the ICU at the hospital, going through surgery after surgery to try and fix the damage that was done to his abdomen. And Celeste is guarding him fiercely. She's keeping 
everyone away from his bedside. No friends visiting, no family visiting, no police. No one is allowed to disturb Stephen while Celeste is on watch. Eventually, Stephen recovers well enough to be released to hospice care, where he goes through a lot of physical therapy and a lot of treatment. And over the course of the next couple of months, he recovers well while in hospice care, and he gets released to go home with his wife. Once Celeste gets him home, she insists on treating him personally. She turns down the hospice's offer of a home nurse to come and care for him. She insists on changing his bandages and taking care of all of his needs herself. After two days in Celeste's care at home, Stephen is back in the hospital. He's having trouble breathing. He's got a really high fever, all huge alarm bells to any doctor treating any kind of post-operative patient, let alone someone of his age and circumstance. The doctors did the best they could. But within a couple of days, Stephen Beard, that lovable, gruff old man with the generous heart, died. The coroner's examination would determine that the cause of death was pulmonary embolism. The man had blood clots in his lungs that smothered him to death. And they were the direct result, it was determined, of, oh, I don't know, having had his guts blown open with a shotgun at the age of 75. Quick personal anecdote here. I, I've been through abdominal surgery, and um, I wasn't shot with a shotgun, but the recovery was still really difficult. It was long, and it was painful, and it was gross. And what Stephen Beard had to deal with in those months between getting shot and finally succumbing to his wounds had to have been just torturously awful. There's no way that he went out gently. And with Stephen's death now, Tracy is no longer charged with felony injury to an elderly person. She is charged with murder. Tracy Tarleton finds herself staring down the barrel of some very serious jail time for having killed Stephen Beard. And the police have always suspected that there's a lot more to her story than she's letting on. But... She's kept her mouth shut this whole time. That is, until five months after Stephen's death. Tracy's sitting in prison reading the local newspaper, and she comes across a wedding announcement. Celeste Beard, her one-time best friend in the whole wide world, and possibly much more than a friend, from whom she hasn't heard a peep in months, is getting married to a dude, a strapping young bartender by the name of Spencer Cole Johnson. Well... Tracy puts the paper down and asks to speak with her lawyer and the police. After months of complete silence on the issue of why she shot Stephen Beard, Tracy has a story to tell. The next chapter in everyone's lives could have easily been titled Celeste Beard, colon, the audacity of this bitch. Once Tracy started to sing, oh my my, the song that she sang. According to Tracy, Celeste was the one who initiated their relationship when they were still in treatment at St. David's. Celeste came into her room one night and just started kissing her. They were absolutely romantically involved. They were lovers, according to Tracy. Once they got out of treatment and continued their friendship after a while, Celeste started telling Tracy all about all these stories about how horrible Stephen was to her, how he was abusive verbally and emotionally, how he would fly into these drunken rages every night and just tell her over and over how she should just kill herself already. Quick note, none of this is true. Stephen Beard never did any of those things. But Tracy had no way of knowing that. All Tracy had to go on was what Celeste was telling her. The woman that she loved was telling her that she had to get away from her husband or she was going to die. And divorce was not an option. So when Celeste asked Tracy to help her kill Stephen, Tracy agreed. Their first attempt on Stephen's life was to cook him up some botulism chili. I shit you not, they took a big old package of ground beef and stuck it out in the sun all day. Because Tracy had done some research and had read in a book of poisons that this was how you could grow a deadly bacteria. So, they, so she did this. They left that beef out in the sun all day and then cooked it into chili and put it all over Stephen's chili dogs one night. And he ate it and said it was delicious, had no ill effects whatsoever. So when that didn't work, Celeste told Tracy that she was going to have to shoot Stephen. And Tracy said, no, she was not going to do that. You don't just shoot a man. Poison him with his chili, yeah, but we're not just going to shoot him in cold blood. But when Tracy said no, that she wouldn't kill Stephen for her, Celeste said, well then I'll just have to kill myself, because I can't live with that man another minute. Well, 
That was when Tracy felt like she had no choice but to agree to this plan. Again, Tracy felt like the woman that she loved, her best friend in the whole wide world, was in mortal danger from the abuses of this man. And the only thing she could do to save Celeste's life was to kill Stephen. That was the story that Celeste had her believing. So Tracy, reluctantly, against her better judgment, agreed to commit murder for Celeste. On the condition that Celeste would agree, if Tracy got arrested for this murder, that Celeste would take care of Tracy's dog for her and pay any of her legal fees. All right. So then Celeste set up the entire plan. She uh, told Tracy how to dress on the night of the shooting. She told her to wear all dark clothes and a dark hoodie to pull up over her head. Then she told Tracy where on Toro Canyon Road to park her car so that the neighbors wouldn't be able to see it. Then on the night of October 2nd that they planned on doing this, uh, uh, Celeste made sure that her daughter Jennifer and her boyfriend, who were going to be staying in the house that night, uh, Celeste told them, you can go ahead and stay at the lake house. This was an extremely rare privilege for Jennifer and her boyfriend, so they snatched it up. Oh, absolutely. We'll go stay at the lake house. Bye, Mom. Psh, they're out. Then Celeste uh, served up Stephen his usual Everclear slash a little bit of sleeping pills cocktail and sent him to bed. Once he fell asleep, she scooped up Megan, his late wife's little dog that slept with him every night. She scooped up Megan, put her in the car, and took Megan down to the lake house where Jennifer and her boyfriend were staying. Now, Jennifer and her boyfriend thought it was a little weird that Celeste would show up in the middle of the night with a dog, but they took the dog in and didn't think anything more of it. Then Celeste returned back to the house and made sure that Stephen's sliding glass door was unlocked. She, instructed, she had instructed Tracy that once she got inside the house, she was to, uh, she was to ransack Stephen's room so it would kind of look like a robbery, and also to specifically shoot Stephen in the gut, because if she shot him in the head, then Celeste would have to get brains cleaned off of the wallpaper, and it was really expensive wallpaper. Then Celeste promised that she would pick up the shotgun shell that would be automatically ejected from the gun so that Tracy wouldn't be implicated, and that she would let Stephen bleed out in his bed before she called 911. Above all, Celeste promised that once this was done, once Stephen was dead, then Celeste would be safe, she would be okay, and that she and Tracy could be together. It was a plan. I wouldn't call it a flawless one. Because the one thing Celeste did not take into account was Stephen being able to call 911 himself. Once he made that 911 call and there was cops in the house, Celeste couldn't pick up the shotgun shell. She couldn't cover for Tracy like she was supposed to. If she had even planned to do it in the first place, ultimately, Tracy was betrayed. And when she saw that marriage announcement in the newspaper five months after Stephen's death, she knew that she had been 100% manipulated and played by Celeste. So she agreed when she talked to the police that she would testify to this entire story in exchange for a lighter sentence. So Celeste Beard was arrested for the murder of her husband Stephen Beard, and she was charged with capital murder. And the case went to trial. And y'all, it was a damn soap opera. First of all, Celeste hires herself a very expensive lawyer by the name of Dick DeGarren. Some of his other clients include people like Robert Durst and the Branch Davidians, in case you've ever heard of them. In the lead up to trial, uh, at one point, Celeste had uh, a big dramatic fainting spell that, resu that resulted uh, in a broken leg. Now, the cast was supposed to come off before she went to trial, but she and her lawyer were like, mm, actually... If we could hold on to that cast just a little bit longer. So on her first day of trial, she sure does hobble into that courtroom on crutches, as though perhaps this would garner some sympathy with the jury. And I suppose they needed every bit of sympathy they could get because in comes Tracy, bless her whole heart, wearing her bright orange prison jumpsuit in the courtroom. So you can tell at a glance that she's done and dusted. This woman's got next to nothing to lose with this entire dramatic story to lay out at the jury's feet. She told them everything, every single detail, down to getting up with her own shotgun that was still a piece of evidence in the case and demonstrating in the courtroom how she walked in and shot Stephen. At no point did Tracy plead any kind of innocence here. She had fully admitted what she did, and she was there in that courtroom that day to make sure that everyone knew Celeste was the reason she did it. But that jury, they didn't just hear from Tracy. Oh no, Celeste's own daughters took the stand to testify against their mother. They told stories about all the times 
that Celeste had drugged Stephen to get him to go to sleep so she could go out and party. They told about all the times that Celeste would make fun of Stephen behind his back, call him that fat fuck while she walked off down the hall for Sunday suck day. But the jury didn't just have to take their word for it. Oh no, these young ladies had recorded phone calls with their mother. And they played those phone calls in the courtroom. Phone calls of Celeste screaming at them, calling them traitors, calling them the Menendez sisters. And in one particularly notable call, telling her daughters that she had hired someone to kill Tracy before Tracy could testify at trial. Which turned out to not be entirely true. Celeste did try to pay her assistant to kill Tracy, but then her assistant just kind of took the money and then didn't try to kill anybody. So, and what was Celeste's defense against all of this? What could she possibly, well, not she, she didn't get on the stand in her own defense at any point. What could her lawyers possibly have to say in the face of all of this testimony against her? Well, obviously everyone was lying. Obviously, the phone calls that her daughters had recorded had been edited to to make Celeste, to paint Celeste in the worst possible light. Never mind that there was no alternate, unedited version of the phone call to be presented in, in court. As for Tracy, well, Tracy had been madly in love with and uh, dangerously obsessed with Celeste from the beginning. Celeste had never meant to lead her on. She just felt sorry for Tracy and, and had reached out in friendship and Tracy had responded with murder, obviously. Celeste had pled not guilty to the entire situation and to this day, she still claims her innocence. But imagine you're the jury, right? You're sitting in this courtroom and you're listening to all of this testimony. You've got, you've got Tracy Tarleton with her blunt honesty, her self-effacing, self-incriminating testimony, how she allowed herself to be manipulated, played, and tricked into killing a man. Then you hear Celeste's own daughters as they weep through testifying against a mother of whom they are clearly terrified. And on top of that, you hear Celeste's own venomous recorded voice reverberating around this courtroom calling a dead man terrible names and berating these two young ladies and promising further murder against Tracy herself. Well, I mean, it might not have taken any of us much longer than it took that jury to come to the conclusion. In 2003, almost four years after Stephen Beard's death, his wife, Celeste Beard, was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison. Now, Tracy... In exchange for her testimony, she got 20 years for murder and was out on parole after 10. But Celeste? Oh, she'll be behind bars till the day she dies, assuming her high-priced lawyer doesn't pull off some kind of legal wizardry between now and then. I don't know about y'all, but I feel pretty good about that. I am a little confused, though, as to how exactly someone who never laid a hand on the weapon or fired it or actually caused injury to, to a person ends up charged and convicted and put away for life for that person's murder. What exactly is capital murder? I don't know the answer to that because I'm not a lawyer. But lucky for me, I happen to be very good friends with someone who is an actual real live lawyer. So I sat her down in front of a microphone and made her explain it to me. Here's how that conversation went. Um, so, hey, who the hell are you? So I am a lawyer. Uh -huh. I, too, am named Stephanie. <laughs> and uh, for the, the purposes of us hanging out, um, I'm happy to be here, but I'm not giving you advice. Not right. giving anybody legal advice. No. Yeah. In, in terms of this case, though, holy moly, um, okay. there are a lot of legal issues. So where we've left the narrative prior to switching audio quality to this setting here where we're in my dining room and not in my recording room um, is Celeste is serving life for capital murder of her husband, Stephen Beard. That's right. Okay. So here's here's where I'm confused, and I'm hoping that you can shed some light. A, what the hell is capital murder, and how is that not... How is it different from plain old murder? Like, I, there's different flavors of murder? There are different flavors. Okay, different so let's classes. talk about capital murder and what the hell that means. Oh, absolutely. So um, all of the crimes mm -hmm. you can ever be charged with um, are laid out in the statutes in the criminal code, and um, the penal code has multiple types of murder. Okay. Um, and that's... Or actually, it's criminal homicide. Mm -hmm. It's the offense of criminal homicide in Texas. And that means that there's a difference between when um, somebody kills another person and they're just uh, criminally reckless mm -hmm. or there's like um, hitting them with your car or something. 
done recklessly with mm-hmm. the requisite intent. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> Don't pin me down to these things. <laughs> just, just generally speaking. But um, murder is also, uh, it's it's felony. Mm-hmm. And capital murder is, um, it is of a degree that mm-hmm. makes you eligible for the most severe punishment. Okay. Capital punishment. Mm-hmm. And so if you are charged with capital murder, you have to meet the state's definition of that type of murder. And specifically, we're talking the state of Texas's definition. Yes. Okay. Every jurisdiction will have their own criminal statutes, mm-hmm. and they will define their crimes mm-hmm. you know, in accordance with how those laws are written. And some states have different required mental states. Okay. Some have different um, requirements to, you know, some states don't have the death penalty. Right. So they're not going to have... I'm not sure what that's like. <laughs> no. Texas certainly <clears throat> very much does. Yeah. And so we have multiple ways mm-hmm. um, a criminal homicide uh, case can be, a murder can be elevated to capital murder. Okay. And what happened here, um, I think the standard or the um, subsection that was applied was because um, of the money involved. The, uh, okay. the theory of the case and from reading the, uh, the appellate opinion was basically that she committed the murder um, for remuneration. She mm-hmm. did it for the money. Okay. And so um, from reading the, the case, it seems like that would be a murder for hire okay. situation. Right. Or in this case, it was done to enable her to receive the estate. Okay. So so the jury basically decided that even though she never touched the weapon, even though as far as we can tell from medical records, his cause of death was not directly linked to her in any way. Directly, directly. Like, she didn't, like, poke him in his wound. This is not a visual medium, so nobody listening to this can see that I'm viciously poking the air in front of me. Um, so she didn't she didn't directly injure him, but she's still charged with his murder for the purposes of getting his money. That's right. She mm-hmm. was, um, the state did not seek the death penalty. Okay. But she was convicted of capital murder. Mm-hmm. And it was based on, so um, there are different crimes that can make you eligible for, um, or different subsections that can make you eligible for capital punishment like Uh the killing of a peace officer or a fireman Mm -hmm. um you know and a person under a certain age it's 10 in Mm -hmm. the state of texas would would his age have had something to do with it as well because he was 75 Uh, at the time so there was interestingly Mm -hmm. um he was celeste beard was also convicted for injury to an elderly person okay so what happened there is that is a statute that is allowed to be charged in conjunction with another crime. Mm-hmm. So there are um, rules that protect criminal depend- uh, defendants and their constitutional rights to not be um, charged for uh, multiple crimes against okay. the same act. Okay, so she couldn't have been charged for killing him and also for having hurt him. Like, right. as two separate things, this is all one big mishmash. For example, somebody's not going to uh, be charged and convicted of attempted murder mm-hmm. and also murder. Oh, okay. Because um, by by keeping, um, I guess, that what is the best way to put it? The state mm-hmm. and the awesome power of the state to bring charges against an individual um, could be abused. Okay. If somebody could be charged for every act, like the battery, yeah, yeah. the attempt, mm-hmm. the actual murder, you know, certainly something, you know, if there was a weapon involved, it yeah. would be aggravated. Well, because yeah, there's a series of shit that she did to him. So does murder essentially just trump everything else? So m- murder trumps all the acts that are contained within that murder. Okay, so it trumps so that, everything that was done to him. That particular that. act okay. or sequence of events. All right. You know, if um, you also, for example, stole a car mm-hmm. while you were doing it, you could be charged with stealing the car. That would be a separate it crime. It would be a different because it's not, um, it doesn't have the same elements of the crime. Okay. So um, what happened here, though, the injury to an elderly person, um, there's a specific law that says you can charge this in addition to. Oh, okay. And so that's why she was because convicted. It, is it because like injury to an elderly person is considered extra heinous? So you can go ahead and slap that on? Well, certainly that must have been the mm-hmm. legislature's thought, mm-hmm. the intent. The reason you can is because the legislature specifically said, hey, you can do this in addition to. Oh, okay. And that is um, that whole area of law mm-hmm. is um, wrapped up and understood in terms of double jeopardy. Okay. And there are specific constitutional requirements that must be met. And in this case, according to the court, they were. So you've had the documents 
to dig through. You've got so much paper in front of you right now. You are so much more prepared than I have ever been uh, for any of this. This is why one of us has a law degree and one of us has a theater degree. Um, so I, what what have you found? What about this was interesting to you? My only question was about how the hell capital murder, like what, what was well, that? What have you got? I did think it was interesting because in this case, they equated her actions in enticing her um, and who knows what's going on her friend, in the background. Her friend. Her friend. Her former um, friend. Very former at this Very point. former friend. But um, she enticed this person to commit a murder on her behalf. Mm-hmm. And it seems that um, she was motivated by financial gain. Mm-hmm. But um, it's surprising because it does seem like the, um, the capital murder statute was contemplating a murder for hire. Right. I mean, so it... It seemed like they even though, looked at it more broadly. They looked yeah. at it in a way where it was like that that statute can envelop this crime too. Because like Tracy wasn't hired. Like like her only Tracy's only gain in doing this was to protect Celeste's life. That's what she thought. She thought she was saving Celeste from from this horrible man. Uh and she she firmly believed that uh that Celeste was gonna kill herself if she had to stay with this guy for a second longer. So there was no transaction with Tracy, but it was still treated like there was That's right, like an because, emotional transaction. Well, and I found that there's one little line in the facts that kind of caught my attention where Tracy said, if something happens to me after I do this, mm. um, take care of my dog, oh. pay my legal fees, oh, Tracy, <laughs> and support me while I'm in jail. Oh, okay. So that would be possible. Well, I have no idea what happened in the trial. Uh-huh. That I gleaned from reading the um, the appellate decision. Mm-hmm. And that was just kind of mentioned. And I didn't know if maybe that was persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree. And I think the court agreed, too, that this was looking at that, you know, that subsection of the penal code kind of broadly. Uh-huh. And the, there were even discussions of how it related to other murder-for-hire cases, Okay. And those were direct transactions. Yeah, like actual financial, here is money, go kill this person. That's right. More yes. money when you're done. And I assume. I think you should always have to pay half up front <laughs> and then half after. Allegedly. <laughs> you're not my lawyer. No, <laughs> so I, uh, I am entirely I don't know what you would have to do, speaking in hypotheticals here because you don't represent me at all. I'm (laughs) not contracting anyone. Wow, you really do have to do a dance here. So, like, backpedal away and put distance between yourself and concepts. I'm not even, you know, from watching uh, NYPD Blue, (laughs) I would suggest. I think here, the court had to grapple with the jury analyzed all the evidence. And in all these cases, it's good to remember that the jury finds the facts. Right. They get to listen to the testimony. They decide who's lying. They Mm -hmm. decide whose testimony is credible Mm -hmm. and how much to weigh it. And so they decide all the facts and they were, uh, by convicting her, Mm -hmm. they presumably, uh, not presumably, they did in fact um, find beyond a reasonable doubt that she met every element of the crime. The state met its burden in proving Uh every aspect. So they had to have bought the theory that this was for remuneration. This was Mm -hmm. for financial gain. Um, And it seems like the, from the indictment that's discussed in the opinion, um, that was the state's theory that it had to do with her gaining access to this estate. It was all for his money. Yes. Receiving the property Mm -hmm. that was worth some amount um, sooner than later. Gosh, he's terrible. Celeste is just terrible and I'm but she still fully 100% maintains her innocence. She will not in any way admit to anything. She'll she'll talk in interviews about how Dick DeGarren, her lawyer, who is apparently kind of a big deal, uh how he's going to keep appealing and he's going to keep trying to get her out. How many chances does she have? That that is a very um nuanced question. There, okay. um, you do not get a lot of bites at the apple. She right. already appealed mm-hmm. to the, the Court of Appeals. Because we've got documents of yes. her appeal. We've read the opinion. They challenged the verdict below. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I imagine uh, because she's on, um, because she's in for life, she's going to keep challenging it. But I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Her attorneys made some very legitimate arguments before the Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the burden of proving that the court below aired is pretty difficult more um unless there is some egregious mm-hmm. error um some misapplication of the law um 
you know, a lot of times judges know that the jury is vested with this responsibility mm-hmm. of weighing the evidence. They were there. They right. saw all the testimony. They had these people in front of them. That's right. And they, could, they could assess the character of everyone involved. And this yes. is why we trust a jury. That's right. And, you know, for good or bad. Right. You know, that's the, the process went as it should. There were some legitimate complaints where the court said, um, the Court of Appeals said, okay, that's a little bit of a close call, but we don't feel like mm-hmm. it tainted the verdict. Like the, the error wasn't so big mm-hmm. that it would justify changing okay. what the jury decided. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. What else? Have you seen, I don't know uh, how, how deeply you Googled Celeste Beard, but like the third thing that pops up is a website clearly created by Celeste's mom. Oh. Uh, about how Celeste is, is, I think it's called Celeste Beard Prison Torment. Hold on, I gotta look it up. Prison Torment. <laughs> look at this. Uh, prison Torment, Celeste Beard, blah, blah, blah. Wow. Yeah. The story can be purchased mm-hmm. on Amazon. Or you can just read through this wackadoo website. I mean, look, the the love of a mom is an amazing thing. And clearly her mom is still, but like... This is the this is just the power of Celeste's continued manipulation. Is she still has people thinking that she's super innocent and that life in prison is a torment to her and clearly prison is very difficult and bad and stuff and, and that she should not have to be there anymore because she didn't hurt anyone. So I, and now prison is like it's like a punishment or something. It's like a <laughs> that's right. I mean, who knew? So yes, prison serves a few purposes. One of them is to turn deter people like me from doing things like that (laughs) because I don't want to end up making a terrible website trying to promote my right my my cause but the thing is you would think that part of the point of prison would also be to make you like change in some way and it does not appear to have had that effect on her at all maybe not and you're right rehabilitation Mm -hmm. trying to make somebody um fit for society so Mm -hmm. they can be reintroduced to society is definitely one of the purposes of prison, but one of them is paying your debt to society. Yeah. You know, that is the toll being extracted by the state. Um, there is also, like I said, deterrence. And um, I think retribution in Texas is is a big one. That's, you know. We are vengeful. Yes. Uh, just by nature. And then, not for nothing, incapacitation. It's keeping her away from us. Yeah. I mean, that is a very significant... Because she was a serial manipulator. She just husband hopped her way across the Southwest until she got to Austin and found and landed a big old fish. So after everything you've read, because I think you've done so much background research, you mm-hmm. think that she is stone cold guilty? Absolutely. Like, no doubt. 110%. Okay. And what uh, about Tracy? I think Tracy absolutely shot him. Well, absolutely. I mean, she 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 admits it completely. But she, she believed that... She, um, Celeste was under duress and just trapped by... I think that Tracy was... uh, She strikes me, because I've watched a lot of interviews with her. She doesn't do a lot of interviews, but I've watched what I could. Uh, And she strikes me as someone who who fucked up hard and knows it. She knows she was manipulated. And she owns that responsibility of having allowed herself to be manipulated to that point. Your drink is very noisy. Stop that. <laughs> totally thought I was on the slide. <laughs> and then the straw was like, let me sing you the song of my uh, people. No. Just... <laughs> that was not slick stuff. Um, <laughs> no, I think that Tracy is a, a very honest person. She's honest okay. with herself about that, that she did a terrible thing and she's going to pay for that for the rest of her life. And that she gave her her heart and her devotion and and all of that emotional energy to a bad person and it was turned against her and like she she doesn't seem to hold any malice in her heart towards celeste like not active she would not spit on celeste if she was on fire i don't think but uh there doesn't seem to be any um any like active gonna go out and get her she just wants she just wants to live I think it's a good bit of human advice when mm-hmm. you're giving out your emotional energy or uh, mm-hmm. meeting people in, in weird places to just uh, not take them up on offers to yeah. shoot people. Just And I think that's that's just a good, that's a good that's takeaway right. from think... all this. 
Uh, well, is that it? Do we do we cover all the things? We answered my question really early. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So um, we should we should have all the proper disclaimers. Okay. You know, I am not giving out legal advice. Mm-hmm. I am not uh, engaged in a client attorney relationship. You don't with you don't represent anybody. A result of mm-hmm. this dialogue, I think we are purveyors of entertainment, mm-hmm. and a lot of the opinions expressed in here are you know. Uh, they are just pure speculation <laughs> and they are Nothing. based on a limited set of facts mm-hmm. and understanding. We weren't there. Um, yeah. I love that you have to say this because like you're a lawyer. You could be held responsible. Nobody cares what I said because I'm not a lawyer. I care what you oh, said. Just thanks. deeply and truly. And thank you for uh, explaining all this stuff. I'm going to make you come back every single episode to explain everything that has to do with the law that well, would be great I will, I will do my best to be better prepared and uh, better prepared you have 900 pieces of paper over there you highlighted that, shit i see highlighter that is a right slight, there okay so that is better a section prepared. of the penal code that is just the <laughs> capital murder section of the penal code in case you know your questions get very specific got it Well, all right. Thank you all for listening. We do appreciate you. If you're enjoying the podcast, I hope that you'll go to whatever podcast platform you're listening on and subscribe to the show. Maybe toss us a couple of few stars rating and a review. I am told by people far more technologically savvy than I that that kind of thing is good for podcasts, I guess. Um, If you would like to find us on any particular form of social media, we are at OSWpod, y'all. That is at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L, currently on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have any recommendations for stories that you'd like for us to look into, or if you have any non-legally binding questions for my brilliant lawyer friend, whose name is also Stephanie, you can reach us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. As always and forever, I am not a journalist or an investigator or a legal authority of any kind, so all of my sources for my research will have links posted on the website, along with pictures of all of the cast of characters involved. You can find that at outlawsandscornedwomen.com. And, whew, yeah, I think that's all of it. So, um, yeah, y'all have a good one, and we'll see you next time. Bye.